Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Waste not, want not. That's an old piece of wisdom that's never been more true than it is today. Americans throw away shocking amounts of perfectly good food every single day. Frankly, you may as well just throw the money right straight into the garbage. But who wants to do that? Laid off during the pandemic, hospitality workers Adam Orzachowski and Emily Shoemaker combined a zero-waste commitment with a fermenting obsession that resulted in a new business they aptly named Farm to Funk. Adam and Emily are now bubbling up internationally based concoctions using refuse from local farms that customers are snapping up at pop-up markets across the area. Suzanne Duplantis of Makeover My Leftover isn't throwing anything edible into the garbage either. Her blog and Instagram accounts of the same name are helping people waste less and spend less. We sit down with Suzanne to hear some of her inspirational ideas. And then we'll visit with Lindsay Jean Hard, author of Cooking with Scraps. She's got edible ideas for things we've all thrown away our entire lives. Like the water you drain from a can of beans? Wait till you hear this one. Don't take out the garbage. At least not until you hear this week's episode of Louisiana Eats. Until the pandemic, Adam Orzachowski and Emily Shoemaker were both happily employed in the New Orleans hospitality industry where they first became interested in reducing restaurant waste through composting and fermentation. Since August, they've been fermenting everything from sauerkraut to kimchi to hot sauce for their new business, Farm to Funk. We joined Adam and Emily on St. Rock Avenue in the shadow of Interstate 610 in New Orleans, where we discussed their fascination for fermentation. Adam began by explaining the product that first got him fermenting, a Mexican street drink he perfected while tending bar. I mean, I've been behind a bar for quite a long time, so I've always played with some fermentation things, and I mean, spirits, wine, all that stuff has seen, seen that world too. But playing with tapache was definitely a, an entry into it. Uh, it's a lightly fermented pineapple beverage that's essentially cinnamon, sugar, and pineapple rind. So you get a little bit of that earthy, fermenty flavor, uh, definitely that tropical, little bit of cinnamon sweet, and some tart from that fermentation too. Oh, that must be delicious! So, yeah. is is that the first your first fermentation project you embarked on? That was the first one I played with in in any sort of like experimentation way. Um, but that was kind of separate. I feel like we were kind of just doing that 
um, with the neighbors because you guys used to make cocktails with it. And we were like, yeah. ooh, let's make tapache daiquiris. And then also you started making um, salsa verde. And hot sauces built from there. Mm -hmm. Just for our own. Own consumption. Yeah. When did this turn into a business? Um, August. Probably August. Yeah. Yeah. And what made you you say to yourself, hey, I think we got a business here? We kind of did not do that. I think that that Abby and Aaron... um, we're a little more uh, yeah those are really good friends of ours they do lucy boone ice cream and um they i think were the ones that were initially doing the markets and suggested to us you guys should do this too like the stuff you're making is really great and so they're kind of like um at their suggestions when we were like well i guess we we're not doing anything else now so all the time in the world out of restaurants for, you know, a year was, and even at that point, you know, five, six months was time to be like, well, what can we do that's still, you know, some sort of hospitality driven business or, you know, customer based business that we can interact uh, and do something that's kind of on our own schedule and on our own time. Tell me what you're actually doing. I think at, at its core, what fermentation is, is a food preservation method historically and also basically controlled decay really like i mean the food is gonna preserve itself just naturally and kind of developing the flavors that we want to use is really fun because we barely have to do anything except for try things because it's going to do it by itself i really love that right now you aren't growing your own food but you're actually using food that might otherwise go to waste right Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, we definitely are paying very close attention to as as zero waste as possible with the product that we use. Uh, We try and bring as much as we can locally, Uh, so playing with seasonal type things. Um, We do hot sauce, so right now can't get too many hot peppers local, but, you know, using other things that we're picking up, Uh, lots of cabbage and root vegetable and stuff like that. So tell me about all the products that you've been building. Um, so it started with hot sauces. Uh, they ferment for about a week with all the product. Um, and a highlight of ours, I would say, is definitely paying attention to the other flavors that are built into them as well. Uh, it's not just heat for heat's sake. Our sauces generally contain, you know, onion, garlic, all that kind of basic stuff. But, you know, highlighting some pepper or a combination of peppers, uh, there's generally a fruit, fruit addition to it. So you started with hot sauces, and then where did you go? Uh, it started finding a way to use the byproduct of the hot sauces. So we do a fine fine strain on our hot sauces and keep all the solid matter out. Uh, so they're fairly thin based hot sauces. Uh, and to throw all of that hot sauce mash away seemed extremely wasteful, uh, especially based on the fact of paying a lot of attention to zero waste. Uh, so it was finding ways to do different things with that. Uh, and kimchi was the first one that we ran into. I think all of the stuff we make has kind of stemmed from wanting stemmed from hot sauce and also stemmed from both of us taking really seriously that like maybe there doesn't have to be such thing as a byproduct. Maybe you can just keep on using it and using it until you, you know, there's just so many opportunities. We started making the spicy beet hummus with the mash too, because the beet hummus was kind of like, or the beet um, kimchi rather 
No, we were getting we were getting a little bored on campus. Yeah, and so we were like, what else can we do? And that's just kind of I think the idea of like all of our stuff kind of going down from that hot sauce, using the mash, and just trying to figure out ways to use like every single part of the things that we're, whether it's purchasing or gardening or whatever the case may be. What does the future hold? What are you all hoping that this business will become or do for you? Uh, I think working into the farming aspect and the kind of working from, you know, straight from the soil to a product that we're finishing is something that I think will be very personally rewarding for both of us. I think for both of us, just um, kind of wanted to express how grateful we are to New Orleans as a community. It's it's just like made me love living here even more. Um, the people who are kind of like pivoting and redirecting and helping each other do it that's just been like such a gift and has added not just like a lot of value to our business but also we've met so many amazing people and it's just felt so like homey and helpful and good to be doing this with everyone so i think that's kind of the getting into gardening and stuff we're kind of hoping we can share that same put a little bit more into the community and all the people that have helped us and hopefully kind of turn that back around and put that back into the community as well. Well, thank you all. This was such a pleasure to meet you. you. And um, what an amazing bunch of products and flavors you've got going here. Congratulations. Thank you so much. much. That was Adam Orzachowski and Emily Shoemaker of Farm to Funk Fermenters. Coming up next, we learn how to get the most out of our culinary throwaways with Suzanne Duplantis, author of the blog, Make Over My Leftover. Louisiana Eats returns in a moment. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways. And from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. I'm Suzanne Duplantis with Makeover My Leftover. I love using leftovers as startovers to create new meals. 
The problems with food waste are so often talked about in global terms that it's easy to forget they begin with our own refrigerators. Studies have found that the average American tosses out about a pound of food each day. What? How much did that cost you in 2020? Baton Rouge-based food industry veteran Suzanne Duplantis has made it her mission to help families reduce food waste and save money. In 2014, she started her blog, Makeover My Leftover, which gives readers countless ideas on how to transform yesterday's scraps into today's delicious meals. Suzanne has been developing an audience ever since, leading to her appearance on the new Netflix cooking competition series, Best Leftovers Ever, on December 30th. Potato flakes, and I did use the whole um, egg roll with the broccoli as well. So you used all your leftovers? I used them all. Wow. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm a, when I say I'm a leftover lover, I am, so why not no, try to really use them that's really good. That's really good. I gotta say, you are the queen of leftovers. You used everything, and I love that about you. Thank you. In 2019, Suzanne joined us in the Louisiana Eats studio to discuss her passion against food waste, which has its roots in her grandmother's philosophy about leftovers. I grew up as a, a little girl on the West Bank of New Orleans, and my favorite spot was on the step stool in my Mimas kitchen. And she was the leftover queen. If there was leftovers from breakfast, it went into lunch, and lunch went into dinner. So she taught me the value and appreciation of food. So that was always with me. And then I had a career in the restaurant industry for 22 years. And seeing my fair share of food waste from the back of the house to the front of the house with the customer's refusal to take to-go boxes. Then I would ask, would you like a to-go box, say, for the rest of your french fries? And I would get responses like, they're not good cold, or I don't like leftovers. So I found myself grabbing the box anyway and writing a little tip on the top of the box saying, if you bring these french fries home, you could have potato pancakes in the morning or different options like that. And I found more people started to take home their to-go boxes. So I was inspired by that. Is that the place where you started to think of it career-wise? Not at all. I love the restaurant restaurant industry. It was my heart and soul. And tragically, I suffered a stroke. So I had to get out of the restaurant industry. And for the first year through my um, rehabilitation, part of it, I had to sit and I cut a green bell pepper. And it took me an hour to cut that green bell pepper. So that's a lot of time to look at that bell pepper on the inside of it and the seeds and think about the farmers growing that pepper and the value of food. So not being in the restaurant industry, I was pretty much going stir crazy. What can I do? What can I do? And my husband, who's a minister, reminded me, you know, when you worked at the restaurant, food waste bothers you. You'd come home and complain about the bags of trash being drugged to the dumpster, knowing that 90% of it was food. He said, why don't you do something with that? And it, it just so happened, one of those meant to be things, it, within a month, I heard the statistic that an average family of four wastes up to $2,200 a year. I started thinking that's a college fund started. That's a vacation that maybe they didn't know they could take. So I started my blog, Makeover My Leftover, with just the hopes of helping one family save food. 
How did it grow from there? It really, it took off uh, tremendously within the first month. I got a call for a segment called Money Mondays about saving money. And that did, you know, prompt me on my journey, so to speak. But at the beginning, I didn't have recipes on my blog. It was a cooking blog with no recipes because I thought if people could just take their leftovers, I'll give them an idea of what to do. But I find that people want to have that initial recipe. How do you make a recipe without knowing for sure what the leftovers might be, what they might taste like? How do you figure that out? My mind never stops thinking with food. I think about it uh, all the time. And my motto is to cook is to create. You know, cooking, it's an art form. And that's what how I like people to look at it. In fact, on my blog, I have a section called Put Your To Cook Is To Create Thinking Cap On. And so when I do a recipe there, I may say if you have a half a cup of leftover gumbo, one of my favorite leftovers is gumbo sloppy joes. And all it takes is uh, ground meat, one pound of ground meat. I add chopped tomato to it and you're going to add your cup of leftover gumbo in there and let it saute down with the meat and the tomatoes and then put it on I like to fill rolls with it french rolls with it and it's a gumbo sloppy joe but I also will give you options on there well if you don't have any gumbo do you have shrimp bisque for instance or do you have chowder what do you have let's look at that and as far as creating recipes from leftovers the biggest thing I tell people is to break down that leftover. What is it? For instance, spaghetti and meatballs. Break it down. It's tomatoes. Well, how would you use tomatoes? Can you use that leftover spaghetti like that? Take, for instance, fruitcake. Uh, I get a lot of requests of that <laughs> during the Christmas holidays. Either You either love it or hate it. I say not to waste it. And it's through questions like that. I came up with actually um, fruitcake granola. So you think fruitcake is nuts, spices, it's dried fruits. What's in granola? All of the above. You have figured out how to take leftovers and stretch them back from a leftover serving in a half or something until maybe a family for four? Right. If it's, take spaghetti and meatballs, for instance. You have enough for one person. Well, that's not going to feed your family. But let's take those spaghetti. Let's add a little bit of ricotta cheese to it. Let's go buy some pie crust. And let's make calzones. Now we have enough with that little bit of spaghetti and meatballs. I was only going to feed one. Under $5, we have enough now to feed that family of four with that cup. So it's definitely stretching the budget. And if you think about the price of food, Nowadays, everybody wants to to stretch the budget. It's shocking. You know, I remember back, you know, maybe 15, 20 years ago, I would wait for ground beef to go on sale at 99 cents a pound. Now it's kind of a deal if you can find it for $3 a Absolutely. Pound. Absolutely. So we need to get the most out of our meals. And I like to challenge people to one-week challenge. If you compost, that's awesome. But if not, for the one-week challenge, all the food that you do not eat that would be thrown away, and that includes when you go to lunch and you're spending $18 on a salad, how much are you leaving on that plate? How much money? But save all that food in one bag for a week and then look at that bag how much food did you waste in the week? It's a visual reminder for us because I think food waste is out of sight, out of mind, and people don't like to think about it, and they don't have to think about it because it's not in their face. But when you're forced for a week to stare at that bag of food, hopefully you'll be thinking a little bit different about it. Think about the farmers, especially here in Louisiana. We know with some of the hardships that our farmers here have had. And look at the produce. Uh, say that this world of overabundance is slowly killing our world. 
Because when we go buy produce, we have all this beautiful produce at the stores that are overflowing. We bring it home, and then life gets in the way. We have plans and good intentions to cook, and then we have a late meeting or the children have practice, and it gets forgotten and it gets lost. And so we easily toss it away because we know that we can go to the store the next day and get some more. But what happens if you couldn't? So what should people do about this problem of everything in the refrigerator that's aging? I have a few easy tips. One is to run your kitchen just like you would a restaurant kitchen as far as inventories. Keep an inventory sheet. Uh, keep one for your refrigerator, your pantry, and your freezer. I have one on the front of my freezer done by shelf. So I'm actually saving energy because I don't have to open up the freezer and stare at it and wonder what's in there. I know at a glance what I have. And as far as the pantry, first in, first out rule, for instance, um, you know, when you go to the store, make sure everything is rotated. And then also a simple thing is the plate size. The plate sizes have increased so much over the years. And that was something personally that we did in our household was I had these big, beautiful plates that I felt the need for dinner to fill everything up when we had dinner parties and that. And then, of course, people can't eat that much. So just reducing plate size made a difference uh, in our household. And we talked freezer inventory. Make your freezer your BFF because your freezer is there, fresh herbs, everything you have, leftover stock can go in the freezer. And then the important thing is to understand the date labels. Food gets prematurely thrown out due to the date labeling. And so a lot of people think, oh, this is expired, when it's not an expiration date. It's a best-by date or a sell-by date. Did you know that there's only one product required by the FDA to have an expiration date? No. Infant formula. We wouldn't have beautiful salvage stores in the city of New Orleans and cities around the state if it was expired food. It's perfectly good food. It's more about the quality. If you have a bag of pork rinds, for instance, the date would be on there, for instance, today. That's guaranteeing you that by today, that's going to be the utmost freshest pork rind, crispiest you can ever have. That doesn't mean tomorrow it's not any good. It doesn't mean the week later it's not any good. And there's some staple items that you should have in your pantry at all times and in your freezer. Always have a protein in your freezer. A bag of frozen shrimp is always in my freezer for a quick go-to. But have your staples in Louisiana. We love our beans. We love our rice, pasta, and have just those items that you know you can throw together really quick. If you have a flour tortillas, quesadillas are super easy for leftovers that you may have. Well, I hope we've got everybody at home inspired to save money, save food, Save the world just one apple core at a time, maybe. You got that right. And that apple core <laughs> makes a great tea. It also makes a great glaze, too. So don't be tossing out the apple core. <laughs> Thank you, Suzanne. It was such a pleasure to meet you. A dream come true. Thank you, Poppy. Suzanne DePlantis of Makeover My Leftover, speaking with us in 2019. Don't throw your love. Just throw their dreams away and play and love. 
My name is Lindsay Jean Hard. I'm the author of Cooking with Scraps. Turn your peels, cores, rinds, and stems into delicious meals. Energized by her membership in a Japanese CSA, that's community-supported agricultural farm, Lindsay Jean Hard began to wonder how she would make use of all the fresh produce she was receiving, especially the scraps. Her curiosity about uses for throwaways, like peels, cores, and rinds, inspired her to search for recipes and experiment on her own. In her book, Cooking with Scraps, Lindsay Jean shares her discoveries, presenting a reference guide for zero-waste cooking. When we spoke by phone, I began by asking her how she became so partial to underutilized produce parts. Well, it was kind of a roundabout journey. I really got more into food and writing when my husband and I were living in Japan for a couple of years. And he and I joined a CSA there for the first time ever. And so that meant that we were getting a box every week of produce that had been grown by local farmers. And, you know, in addition to it being a new exploration for me of fruits and vegetables that I'd never seen or cooked with before, it was like a really poignant moment for me of connecting with where my food was coming from because I was thinking more about the farmers that were growing this nearby and I really wanted to respect and honor the food and use all of what I was getting. And then eventually, um, after coming back and helping friends create a startup that was all about connecting to where your food was coming from, I started working for food52.com, a food and lifestyle website. And I wore a number of different hats there as well, but I wrote um, a couple of different columns and one of them was cooking with scraps. And I would search through the recipe archives because that's a community-built website where anyone can upload uh, recipes. And I would look for ones where community members had made smart use of underutilized produce parts and other odds and ends. And I would feature them. And I just, I learned so much in that process that then I wanted to share that knowledge with a broader audience. I loved your writing. I'm really a big fan. And you mention your time in Japan in the book. And The Japanese have their own very interesting concept of waste not want not, don't they? Yeah, they do. It's a couple of different Japanese phrases that really stuck with me and helped motivate this book. But the one that you're referring to is motenai. And in some ways, it's not all that different from waste not want not. But their version manages to capture like not only the shame and wasting the precious resource, but it also holds on to the gratitude for what a gift that was in the first place, whether it's food or something else entirely. It was so inspirational to me to read that really one of your motivations is to change the food system from your own kitchen. You know, sometimes this problem seems bigger than all of us, but to get it down to your own home kitchen Because 40% of U.S. food goes uneaten. How can that be? I know. I mean, it's just a really staggering number. And, you know, it really does start in our own kitchen. There's a lot that we all can be doing, and that really does make a difference when it's collective action with all of us coming together. What are some of your best recommendations for people who want to change the food system from their kitchen? I recommend 
not getting overwhelmed and just starting small because it is true once you think about that and realize how big the problem is, it's easy to get overwhelmed. But that's not going to help anyone if we're overwhelmed and just, you know, don't bother cooking with them to begin with. So if you just choose like one scrap or two scraps that you haven't been using to start cooking with, whether it's stale bread or broccoli stems or corn cobs, and if you start putting those to use and work them into your repertoire and really get comfortable, then just keep adding in more as you go and you'll get more and more comfortable and they'll just become more like any other ingredient and you won't start to see them as scraps anymore. Well, I don't think a lot of people have any great ideas about what to do with apple and pear peels or or cores. Um, what are some of the things that you recommend people do? Well, peels are a really fun one. I like to make flavored salts and sugars with them. Um, so you can dehydrate those peels like tomato peels, pear peels, and plum peels just in the lowest setting on your oven, or of course, if you have a food dehydrator, that works too. And then I'm just combining them in a food processor with salt or sugar. And you end up with these really flavorful salts and sugars that are have lovely colors too. And they just add a lot of visual interest and flavor to things that you're making. Your book absolutely, if I can say so, really kind of bent my brain. How in the world did you ever come to think a banana peel should go in a cake? (laughs) Well, I don't know when it was that I first learned that they're edible, but that was really a mind-blowing thing to me, too. I had had no idea and, you know, had never thought of that. And I think that's a lot of people's feelings. We just don't realize at all that they're edible. And so my first thought once I realized that was I should make banana bread that doesn't have any bananas in it. I don't know about you, but I have had trouble finding my one perfect banana bread recipe. Like I find one and I'm like, oh, it should be a little more this, a little more that. And so I didn't have a good starting place. But my grandmother has made this banana cake for all of my life. That's my favorite banana cake recipe. And so I thought that that would be a great starting point for me to try using banana peels in a cake. And it's delicious. It's moist. It has a great texture. And you'd never know there's no bananas in it at all. It's just the peels. How do you process the peels to get them edible? Because they're so fibrous. Yeah, well, so for the cookbook, I have you chop them up and cook them a little bit in water to soften them and then blend that all together. In the past couple of months, I've continued experimenting with this. And I found that you can also freeze the bananas whole and then peel them, and the peels soften a lot from going through that freezing and thawing, and so it makes them even easier to work with. So that's another option, too. Okay, true confession. We drink a lot of coffee down here in New Orleans, and yes, I have seen a pork loin rubbed in coffee grinds to be roasted, but I haven't really seen a lot of recipes that include coffee grinds, much less used coffee grinds. Now, what's up with that? Yeah, used coffee grounds still contain so much of that coffee flavor. There are just a number of ways that you can be putting them to good use. In the book, I'm using them in a nut butter because you'll get that coffee flavor, but you also get um, a great little crunchy texture in the nut butter. 
And then on Food 52, you can also find a recipe for a French silk pie where I've used those grounds a couple of different ways. Um, I'm using them to infuse cream to make a whipped cream topping for the pie. And then I'm also using them straight up in the crust of the pie along with some crushed chocolate cookies. So it's a nice chocolate coffee blend of flavors. We are big bean eaters down here. You know, it's red beans and rice every Monday. And in your book, I discover an ingredient I've never even known of before. Tell me about that magical ingredient you discovered. It is a magical ingredient. So you're talking about aquafaba, and that's the name for the cooking liquid from beans and other legumes. And you can definitely use that liquid from um, soaking and cooking your own dried beans. Um, If you haven't worked with aquafaba before, though, I would recommend starting with the liquid from canned beans. Why? It's just sometimes it can be a little bit of a tricky ingredient, and I found it more consistently works and whips up for you if you're using the liquid from canned beans. And that's what's fun about this ingredient. It, It whips up just like egg whites do. And so you can use it a lot of the same ways that you use egg whites. So in the cookbook, I'm using them to make brownies, and I'm also using them to make a mayonnaise. So it can go sweet or savory. This is really blowing my mind. Yeah, it's really fun. Um, It does taste slightly beany, so you could use it, like, straight up to make meringues, like something similar to, you know, an egg white-based meringue. Um, In that case, you would probably want to be adding flavor, like cocoa powder or matcha powder, along with sugar to help mask that beany flavor a little bit. But when you're using it, like, in place of eggs, like in the brownies, for example, that beany flavor does not come through. Now, is there anything that you've ever said, oh, my goodness, this is relegated to the garbage? (laughs) Well, I've been on a mission. There's a recipe on Food 52 for broccoli stalks that treat them sort of like bones, and it's cooking them, them to the point where you're scooping out the inside like marrow from a bone. And I really wanted to be able to do that with broccoli, with Brussels sprout stalks. But those are just so tough and woody and fibrous that I have yet to be able to use the Brussels sprout stock. But someone suggested trying a pressure cooker. So that might be what it (laughs) takes to uh, figure out how to use that one. Lindsay Jean, I love your book. And I hope everybody checks out your work on Food 52 and starts turning all of their normally compostable bits and pieces into yummy, yummy, edible things. I'm going to go home tonight and um, finish out the last of that jar of strawberry preserves with some balsamic vinegar. That sounds like a delicious salad dressing. Oh, perfect. I hope you enjoy it. And thank you so much for having me. That was Lindsay Jean Hard, author of Cooking with Scraps. We spoke in 2019. So if you find someone Who gives you all of the love Take it to your hot dome Let it stray Oh, I think for certain you Where should it be a hurting If you throw it all away What else can you do with a peach pit Besides throw it away, stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. 
I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, plan to stay, play, and get away on the Louisiana North Shore this spring. Discover the bounty of the bayou and rich culture from award-winning chefs, soulful mom-and-pop restaurants, extraordinary bakers, and creative mixologists. To learn more, request the newly released Explore the North Shore Visitor Guide for inspirational stories, custom itineraries, and event information at louisiananorthshore.com. St. Tammany Parish, 40 minutes from New Orleans French Quarter and a world away. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What else can you do with a peach pit besides throw it away? Actually, all stone fruit pits can be cracked, yielding a tiny kernel with a very strong almond flavor. In fact, some brands of amaretto are made with them. Here's the crazy thing, though. They actually contain a small amount of cyanide, and eating a small handful could give you a stomachache or worse. So what does Lindsay Jean Hard recommend? She recommends using Alice Waters' method of roasting the kernels for a brief time, which eliminates the harmful substance. Then, using vodka and simple syrup, she crafts her own version of what the French call creme de noyau. You see, the French even have a special name for those small stone fruit kernels. They call them noyau. So the next time you make a fresh peach pie, get cracking on those pits. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. My name is Elliot Sherman, and I'm an environmental scientist. For Elliot Sherman, water is an issue that flows through all areas of our lives. He works for the Environmental Protection Agency, a job that brought him to New Orleans in 2018 to spread the word about conservation. Here in Louisiana, we know quite well that living with water can be a constant struggle. Elsewhere, Americans are experiencing the opposite problem, dealing with annual droughts and wildfires that cause other serious hardships. Elliot stopped by our studio during his visit, and I asked him to share his view on water conservation and its connection to the food and beverage industry. So water is an integral part of a society, part of our economy, and uh, a lot of people don't, don't think about it, you know, when they you know, wash their clothes, brush their teeth, flush the toilet, um, where that water's coming from, uh, where that water goes, um, how much it costs to 
get it to you clean, um, what it costs to treat it afterwards. Um, and it's a scarce resource in a lot of parts of the country, um, as we see in the news uh, more and more lately. So it's something that's worth bringing more to the forefront, discussing, uh, figuring out ways um, that we can conserve um, new technologies to reuse water, things like that. And it's not just in the U.S. Water is an enormous issue on the entire planet, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. I actually uh, did my graduate work in the Middle East, um, where water's been a huge problem uh, for many years. So they've been on the forefront of uh, new technologies, treating saline water, desalinating ocean water to make drinking water. So it's, it's a big issue everywhere, obviously. A lot of places in Africa, the developing world, um, don't have any. Um, you know, they're digging wells in their backyard. So, yeah, it's, it's a big issue everywhere that uh, finally in the U.S., you know, we're starting to see that we, you know, we don't really have that much either. So, What are some of the desperate measures that you see people taking to get potable water? Uh, yeah, it's, it's desperate in a lot of places in the world. You know, sub-Saharan Africa is a great example, but uh, women will walk hours a day just to, to get one barrel of water um, to bring to their families. And that's time that they could be spending in school, um, getting education. And, you know, traditionally in a lot of societies in Africa, it's the women who would get the water for their families. Um, so, you know, they're having to walk further and further. Um, local wells that aren't um, dug deep enough are drying up. Um, and so they're needing to dig more wells and that can affect the groundwater. Um, and with contamination, you know, you might have used to you know, had a water source near your house that's no longer clean. So, yeah, internationally, I mean, those are some of the problems in the developing world. Um, luckily, there's some NGOs um, trying to help, you know, with those wells and, and, and educate and, um, you know, provide the opportunity for these women to not have to walk so far and then, you know, that kind of spirals. But that's certainly one. I mentioned the Middle East earlier, but even with developed societies um, in the Middle East, um, they, they don't have water resources other than to desalinate from the ocean. And that's very expensive. It takes a lot of energy currently. So it's not quite a solution just yet. When we look at the industry that our Louisiana Eats listeners are most likely involved in, which is the hospitality industry, whether it's the restaurant or the bar, what are some measures that people should be considering? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and bars and restaurants have this great opportunity to be a, a source of education for their patrons. And, um, you know, if you can... Um, as a bar owner or a restaurant owner, you know, take a look at what you're doing, how you're running your operation and say, oh, this, you know, I could get this lower flow toilet and I could save, you know, 20, 30 percent of my water use. Or I could train my bartender a little bit differently and use a little bit less ice on every single drink I make, um, you know, and over the course of a night and a week and a month um, and a year that can save thousands of gallons. Um, you know, that, that can have a big impact. And if your patrons see that, then maybe they go home and think, oh, maybe I'll turn off the, the faucet when I'm brushing my teeth. Or, you know, I won't run the dishwasher when it's half full. Um, I think it can kind of spread from there. So, Let's talk about water reuse. You know, most of us use water and it just washes down the drain. What are your thoughts about how we can conserve through reuse? Well, water reuse is something I'm, I'm pretty passionate about. I studied it and very interested in. I think it's a great solution. Um, as you mentioned, you know, water goes down the drain. We don't really know what happens. So traditionally, that would be treated, you know, at your treatment plant um, to a clean enough degree that it could be put back into your river. Um, and then to make drinking water, it would have to be taken out again, treated again. And that's all, you know, when you think about it holistically, it's energy, it's time, it's, um, you know, burning coal to make power, things like that. But with reuse, you can kind of look at it uh, more as a resource. So 
Um, you can take that water, um, treat it to such a degree um, that you can use it for irrigating. You can use it in uh, public um, you know, sprinklers or fountains, things like that. So instead of having to dump it back into a stream, you can use it one more time, essentially. Um, another example would be like a gray water system. We call it gray water basically any water that's not sewage. So within your household, um, you could use that water from your washing machine to uh, flush your toilets. That can add up to a huge amount of water that you don't need to be using um, fresh that uh, you can use one more time. And so it's an energy savings, it's a resource savings. And in places like out, out west where they're uh, you know dealing with drought and constrained resources, it really adds up. So you know, there's places that are reusing um, 80, 90 percent of their water in the world currently. So we're, we're getting there here as well. But. That's very ambitious. I, you know, here in Louisiana, New Orleans, we're seven feet under sea level. I, I don't really see anybody going to the gray water level. And uh, I don't know how you get that message to those people. Yeah, I think it's slow to catch on sometimes. I know out west, it was something that there was no other option, really, when drought started to happen more frequently. Um, when you're in an area like down here in Louisiana, where you're right on the water, or in the Great Lakes, you don't necessarily think about it. But when you when you look at water as as a you know as a resource that takes energy as well, um, and everything that's included in that, then you can start to see that no matter how much water is around your city, it's still worthwhile to um, take advantage of some of implementing resource um, measures and infrastructure things like that. How can people look for this guidance? Where can they find the word on what they can do to help this problem? Sure. Well, uh, you know, a great place to start is, is with your city. Um, you know, reach out whatever phone numbers on your, your water bill, give them a call, go online. It's, it's easy to Google, you know, what city you're living in in the water and, and they'll have probably resources of their own. Um, there's great, um, federal, uh, programs out there as well. So, um, just as an example, water sense is a federal program that certifies, um, appliances that are, um, low flow or really efficient. So you can go and get a list of those and see, um, you know, what's uh, a better product to use, how much it saves. Um, and, and again, if you're a, a restaurant or a bar, that, that really does affect your bottom line. Um, so, you know, that's one thing that we're doing is, is providing those resources that might not be uh, familiar to people um, if they reach out. And if you're doing it on your own, start locally and, and go from there. Um, there's also a lot more um, consulting happening now in the bar and restaurant industry. Um, so there's bartenders that, that are, um, you know, aware of this and, and concerned about it. So they're talking to their fellow bartenders and, you know, some of them have came and, uh, discussed with me and I'm consulting with them. It's kind of spiraling and, and hopefully that, that chatter will, will spread. Um, and so, you know, then when a patron comes into a bar that might not be doing any conservation and says, what are you doing, um, to save water or energy, uh, they can then turn to, you know, their fellow bartenders or look online and, and find out what they can do. Well, I'm I'm really thrilled to have had this opportunity to talk with you on Louisiana Eats. And sometimes it's Louisiana Eats and Drinks, and today it's we'll drink some water. So let's drink to that. Cheers. Thank you, Elliot. Thanks so much. That was Elliot Sherman, water scientist at the EPA. Speaking with Louisiana Eats in 2018.
That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Explore the Taste of Flavor are a new series of cooking classes we're producing with Louisiana Fish Fry. In each class, you'll get to cook along with me as you master a classic Louisiana dish. Our first class takes place on Friday, March 26th, featuring Catfish Pecan Meniere and Louisiana Fish Fry's Etouffee. The class is free, but we're accepting donations to support the Louisiana Hospitality Foundation. To learn more and sign up, head to louisianafishfry.com. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have 10 years of Louisiana Eats available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and videos, too. And if you like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta, handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods and wooden cellars, D'Agostino Pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlo and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner and producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris. And to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. <laughs>